So I'm here with Bill Loki, and I'll throw it to him in terms of what his background is, but I'm really, really excited to have him join us because he's one of you know the many people that we've been talking to about crisis leadership. And as you'll see very, very quickly, he fits the bill very, very well, and he's got a great perspective on a lot of the things that we've been talking about. So Bill, thank you very much for, for joining me. And you know, can you tell the, the viewers a little bit about yourself and your background and that sort of thing? Okay, will do, Daryl. Thank you. Well, um, I, I've had a career in emergency management, and I would best look at it, I'm more of a second responder. I think the last time I was in the field operationally managing anything was um, as a volunteer running a sandbag crew in flooding in um, Washington in 1977. So I've, I've been on scene in, in places, but it was mainly in a supporting role to the first responders that I you know, have highest respect for. I did wear a uniform for two years um, at uh, California Office of Emergency Services in the Fire and Rescue Branch, but I was assistant chief in special operations, but I was more of an administrative chief uh, doing grants and uh, organizing the training um, for the California urban rescue teams, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, mainly from uh, being a mountain rescue volunteer, uh, I ended up getting my first work in emergency management in 1977 with the state of Washington Department of Emergency Management. Um, started out just on the staff, um, managing grants and being part of grants, um, doing training for disaster plans and research in how the private sector can help in disasters and uh, the National Earthquake Hazard Reduction Program. Um, in 1982, I was elevated to the Assistant Director of Operations and uh, was in charge of the state EOC, communications, radiological defense. And one of my main things then was the long-term recovery for the Mount St. Helens eruption, mm -hmm. where I'd been just staff uh, on the phone and helping out with no leadership position. But then I was kind of the um, one of the lead players in the legislation we had to do and um, going through the management of that. In 1986, I became the emergency management director of Pierce County, Washington, and ended up being also uh, the fire marshal, um, managing the administration for 911 and emergency medical services and radio communications. And again, um, supporting the first responders in the field, we had developed um, rescue systems training. Um, I ended up being, um, you know, great title, the sponsoring chief for Washington's FEMA Urban Search and Rescue Team. But I was mainly the guy writing the grants, getting the training done, paying the bills, and um, things like that. I did so work basically everything the knuckle draggers didn't oh, yeah. want to handle, right? And, oh, with that, I got to work on scene for um, at the Oklahoma City bombing. Um, uh, mainly, again, in liaison and uh, not doing actually rescue and recovery operations. Um, after that, um, and with our work in developing Washington's urban rescue team, um, I went to California in 97 through 99, as I mentioned before, um, supporting their eight urban rescue teams with the training and the grants administration from the state and things like that. Um, then I was recruited into FEMA, Federal Emergency Management Agency, as a federal coordinating officer. And with that, um, under our law, when our president declares a disaster, the law says the president will appoint a federal coordinating officer to manage the federal response. And so from smaller and larger disasters, from tornadoes in Indiana to uh, cyclones in Samoa, um, earthquakes in Washington. Um, I would manage the long-term recovery for that. 
during that time when 9-11 happened, because of my background with the Urban Search and Rescue Program, uh, I was on scene at 9-11 as basically the FEMA liaison to New York Fire, helping them get the things they needed, because I spoke FEMA, and it, you know, helping identify their needs and then short circuiting the paperwork that's required by law, um, working with them. So I had that perspective on scene, but again, I, no command and control. I've mainly been a coordinator. And actually, that's been one of the problems in some of our big disasters, both from Mount St. Helens and from 9-11 and from Hurricane Katrina, where I was involved in the operations there, is, you know, a coordinating agency does different than a command and control agency. And that's a function of planning. So long-winded, uh, oh, yes. And then 2007, I left FEMA, became a consultant for eight years, um, working in both helping local governments, state governments, and a few private sector entities with preparedness and response on, you know, advising governors in floods, um, mainly in the aftermath and, and recovery. And I've been semi-retired lately and um, working with folks like Tom Miner and, you know, kind of bringing up to date some of the training for our solid volunteers and things like that. So that, that's the long-winded version of my background. I, you know, it, it's funny because a couple of the guys that we've talked to, they're re, they're failing at retirement is essentially the way, the way they're viewing it. And, and Bill, you know, one thing I'm really excited about is because the audience is private sector and corporations going through crisis, I'm really excited to talk to you because you definitely have a more organizational view and perspective on how organizations respond to crisis, which yes, they're ultimately made up of individuals. But, you know, I'd be curious, we spoke a little bit off camera about, you know, some common themes, but from your perspective, when you go in as the quote unquote outsider, you have a great perspective coming into an organization and seeing how it functions or, or how it reacts to crisis. Is there you know, are there a couple of themes that you've identified, whether it be, you know, 9-11, Katrina, tornadoes, and all those other things organizationally that, that you see that, you know, maybe we could talk about? Well, yes. And, and actually, I, I've got to be honest with you, um, most of the things that were my basis for emergency management came from was actually um, in the 1980s when I got involved in the disaster research that was going on. Um, like after St. Helens, a lot of social scientists showed up um, doing studies on, you know, how did command and control work? How did multi-organizational operations work and things like that? And several of them identified certain themes of things that always seemed to go wrong when communities were overwhelmed by disaster. And I don't have a lot of private sector experience, but in working with a lot of private sector contractors and as a consultant with helping them with exercises and training and planning, I have a sense that these are human nature issues as much as they are public and private um, issues. And a, a couple of things that, um, kind of guided how I, especially when I was working on plans when I was a local government emergency manager in our county, is there were some common things that always seemed to go wrong when communities and organizations were overwhelmed by disaster. And one of them, there was usually poor communications. And, and in most every action, after action report um, that I've read, you know, poor communications always seems to lead the parade. And what research pointed out from experience that it's not just not having 
um, radios that you can talk to everybody who showed up. Uh, um, with interoperability, improvements are being made, but sort of my opinion is as long as you have competing companies selling radio equipment, um, whether you have GE, Ericsson, you know, all these different companies that sell radios, it's going to be different, difficult to get interoperability seamlessly um, through everybody just because things, things are different. But these are also, as the researcher pointed out, social linkages is people not knowing people. And smaller communities seem to do better when they were overwhelmed by disaster. And that's my basic definition of disaster. An emergency or uh, an event, you know, is when you have to move quickly to protect life and property. But when it gets beyond your capability, then you're in a disaster. And it may be at the low end of that where, you know, like with the FEMA declarations, you handled everything, but you just need some help paying, getting paid back for all the extra operations you've had. Up to the catastrophic, like we saw in Katrina, like for example in New Orleans, there was no public transportation system. There was no hospital system. And it took a while to, through contracting, that the help that we did with FEMA, you know, we built that back for them. We put in a temporary radio communication system because theirs was all destroyed. And so, but the communications issues come up, you know, from both lack of hardware, but all, also software type things. Another issue that seems to always come up is one, the research term um, that I picked up called ambiguity of authority. And that's the basic question of who's in charge of what. And what happens in a disaster when you get other agencies on scene with their badge or their authority, if this hadn't been worked out ahead of time, there's going to be confusion of like we had in Katrina of everything from recovering the fatalities. Um, what the plan said, politicians decided not to do, and then everybody thought somebody else was going to do it. And it just got very confusing for a while. And that seems to happen over and over again. Another issue that happens, I think, more in the public sector than the private sector is what they call convergence. We're basically in a society that doesn't wait for first responders to be get there. People roll up their sleeves and go to work. This was identified on the I-80 collapse in the Loma Prieta earthquake in, I think it was 1989, that people from all over the neighborhoods were showing up with ladders and jacks and hammers and whatever they could pick up to help out. And debriefing with the first responders, you know, they needed strategies to manage this. It's going to happen. Um, in Oklahoma City, all the live rescues were made by the spontaneous response, not by the organized response. So, and often and that happened in Katrina too. Everybody wanted to show up to help, and that becomes a management issue. Another issue that uh, seems to always occurs: the poor use of special resources that you need in a disaster. Um, right now, no one needs dogs in the city of Seattle that know how to find victims in rubble. But when you have your major earthquake, you know, that, that's an unusual resource. Who knows how to use that? And that tends to be a problem. And the final issue that has come up, and I've seen this both in the public and private sector, is um, poor relations with the media. And mm -hmm. it um, usually ends up very negative. And that's often just because the organization or the local government, you know, had their PIO, but when the their public information officer, but when you had the national media and that was totally overwhelmed, um, they won't wait for the story, they'll go out and get it. And so that whole thing of having a plan to get your message to the public, whether it's your employees in a private firm or to the citizens in a small town or the citizens in a large city, 
you know, having that pre-planned and the way to expand your administrative and operational capacity to do that. And so, and what I find that every time I hear about a big disaster and people start complaining about things going wrong, more often than not, it's one of those. And so that leads to in your planning, just for public or private, what I call the management 101, you know, developing things. If you know that's going to happen and always seems to, if you can address those things, you might not solve all your problems. But I've seen communities that have worked on those do better when their big one occurs. You know, and I think, you know, in this context, we take the word communities and we replace that with companies. Because like you said, ultimately, we're talking about human nature. We're talking about the human experience that we're all feeling and whether it's a community or an organization it's made up of individuals so i really like that so we're talking about you know poor communications ambiguity of authority uh divergence talking about lack or misunderstanding or misapplication of special resources media relations and i was curious you talked about uh some of the things that you were able to do or at least coordinate or be party to that so things like establishing a public transit system where one previously didn't exist or getting hospitals back online that previously had been devastated. I'm wondering if we can take maybe one of those examples, and, and we don't have to mention names or anything like that, but I'm curious, if you were to to look at a municipality, and I've been there as well, where we've had a problem and we've fixed it in a quantum, you know, incredibly small amount of time, when normally we're talking about weeks, months, or years outside of crisis to actually make it happen. So how how did, in your observation, your experience, how do you make something like that happen? How do you establish a transit system where normally it would take years to actually carry that out? Well, and and the main thing is um, pre-planning. Like one of the main things in Katrina that – in the after action reports, I was still with FEMA at the time that we fixed, is, you know, getting outside help in. When, when we were asked to help evacuate New Orleans, um, it took a while to go out and work through the transportation system to charter buses, which it took about 96 hours, but we moved close to 75,000 people to safe shelter um, in Houston and in states all around. And it took 96 hours because we had to just do that on the fly. We, we had no pre-plans like that. Um, the military is a marvelous resource, but under the law, um, I'm not a three-star general like General Honoré was and a great man to work with and uh, Admiral Allen too um, that, that came in. But, um, you know, they can kind of snap their fingers and get a helicopter flying. Mm-hmm. Under the law, we have to have a mission assignment that identifies, and especially if FEMA's going to pay it back, um, which is an authority FEMA has, you know, to working out all those details to, to do it. Um, it took a couple of days to put together a couple of billion dollar mission assignment to get the full resources of the U.S. military into Katrina. We took a lot of heat for how long it took. Well, what we did to fix that, we prescripted the mission assignments. So every year we already had what it looked like to get a heavy lift helicopter. We didn't have to negotiate what the costs were going to be or figure them out. Um, it was already there. So it shortened the time between problem and solution. And so a lot of things are just pre-planning. If you can envision that suddenly you're going to have the world's media at your doorstep, like if you're a large corporation, um, like certain ones that have an oil spill or something like that, Mm -hmm. then what's your plan for expanding your administrative or public information capacity to do that? 
If you do it during the event, you may pull it off, but I'm here to tell you, it will take you longer than if you pre-plan things like that. Getting information to your employees, planning ahead for working at home, uh, working with your supply chain about if part of it breaks, um, you know, how um, you're gonna repair that. And I've worked with a couple of uh, large corporations in the Seattle area that was interesting in their pre-planning that they didn't get any contractors to provide their parts in their supply chain unless those contractors had emergency plans to keep that supply chain going if a disaster occurred. That was just good business for them. And, you know, but in peacetime, when you're busy with all sorts of things, you know, um, how often do you think about that? But yeah. and, and getting back to the management 101, what um, and I didn't come up with this. I got this out of an international city managers association guidance for local elected officials of how to survive a disaster. And it, it was research based because they had worked with some of the research community to do this. But the first thing you got to figure out is who's in charge of what. And if things are disrupted and somebody's not available anymore, who takes over to be in charge of that? In the military model, there's chain of command. That's clear. Everybody knows if somebody's missing, you know, who's going to fill that in? Well, in the private sector and even the public sector, that's not often thought out very well. So, And in fact, I would even submit that companies have to, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, but companies have to recognize that during crisis, it's not business as usual. So maybe those previously established, what we would call chains of command, but organizational you know, hierarchies, I think companies and individuals have to recognize that those may no longer serve you, at least serve you for this period of time. Mm -hmm. So how, how would you go about you know, figuring out who's in charge or, or at least communicating what that looks like. Because sometimes there's, you know, there, there's ego involved, there's turf, you know, there's silos. So what kind of guidance would you give to companies that are at least realize that the way we're set up in peacetime isn't working right now? So given your vast experience, what would you tell, you know, that well, business owner? Or A lot of that is pre-planning. So you, you work out and similar to some of the concepts like in the National Incident Management System that came out of the Incident Command System that uh, was developed in FIRE, uh, number one is you know, giving people permission to improvise and to get the job done. And, and that comes planning and then training so people know what that plan says. So they're not, you know, and one of the things too that about planning that, um, Something we talked about that I found worked in both local and state government. You know, first of all, I found out everybody's real busy. There's hardly anybody I've ever known that has employees that are sitting around with nothing to do. Mm -hmm. But at least in our system in the United States, we have required safety meetings that companies need to have. Everything from fire drills to um, a variety of things. So you identify what might happen to you and then is mainly for the protection of your employees. Well, that in protecting them, that helps you with your continuity of business. And I've been on a number of safety committees where people were looking for what to do at the monthly required safety meeting. Well, why don't you have a half an hour discussion on what the plan says on a different part of it? And the plan is just making decisions in advance. And, um, you know, and it's things like not only, you know, who's in charge of what and how you, you know, if somebody's sick or missing, who get, has permission to do that? Or if it's got some special authority that has to be involved, then how do you accommodate that? And that's on an individual basis of what the you know, leaders, you know, how bad they want to do this. 
Um, they can either shut the whole place down and call it off or certain things they can delegate down. Not, you know, and I, it won't apply to every business. Well, and the um, second thing you need to have to do is then identify um, when you figure out who's in charge of what, where, where are they going to be in charge from? And is this something where they're going to rove around the facility giving orders like that? Or is there a command post or something where they're going to come together? And then the next thing is, is, okay, then what do you need to be in charge? And humorously, we'd always say, if you got to have coffee and donuts to be in charge, where are you going to get your coffee and donuts from? But main thing is, what information do you need to be in charge? And where is it going to come from? And I'd experience in our county after we saw, when I went with a group down to debrief with some colleagues with the Loma Prieta earthquake, talking about how important it was. And the model was um, the Oakland Fire Department. Their leadership honestly said it was 24 to 36 hours after that earthquake till the management of the Oakland Fire Department knew the status of the Oakland Fire Department. Because they could see on CNN that their firefighters were going out doing incredible things, but management didn't know the status of the stations, how many people had showed up to work, the status of the apparatus. So they couldn't make management decisions like, can we handle this or do we got to have help and what kind of help do we need? So they rewrote their whole thing. That's, so the firefighters would go out and start saving lives, but there was always somebody responsible in every station. What happened? What can we do about it and what do we need and where does that go and get that information up? It's like damage control on a ship. The captain isn't going to get every little bit of information. The captain needs to get what the captain needs. And you got to work out then down the line to keep your mission going what it was. And then yeah, you got to yeah. figure out in the company, how do you relate to higher up, whether that's the public, the chairman of the board, the um, investors, and you know what information do they need and on the level down to the employees to the public whoever what information do they need and again that's the key thing that missing information so you can keep people informed and then so uh, there's so i just want to unpack a few of those things with regard to using the oakland fire department as an example and i think this is a, a situation that's been duplicated thousands of times but so there's two parts of that so there are the firefighters in that example and in private sector be your employees but the firefighters knowing what they need to do and even without centralized command as we would call it they know that and they're empowered and expected to go do their job in the absence of clear direction right so they really knew what their purpose was so i want to unpack that a little bit but also too with regard to this current state analysis essentially that the fire department had to go through. I think it's important to recognize that your inputs may not be still the same ones that you relied upon, you know, the week before. And you need to kind of establish that a little bit on the fly because you're talking about a distributed workforce. You're talking about people that are super busy. So in your experience, how do you get organizationally people on the front lines kind of working toward the mission in the absence of, you know, the CEO or the head of an organization telling them exactly what to do just over the, the scope of all of your years. What, what does well, that look it, like? Well, it, it's just a function of planning of, you know, kind of identifying what might happen. And that might be inside your boundaries, like you might have the power out or a fire or something like that, or something that goes beyond your boundaries, like a community wide earthquake. And it's just, and there is more guidance online and checklist on doing this, and you can make a career out of reading them all, but it's doing it. 
and keeping it up to date and continuing that discussion, a plan is no more than the promises you make on how you intend to behave when bad things happen. And so have that discussion, create the plan on how you as the manager or the employees know on the different levels for your safety, for the continuity of operations or for whatever it is your priorities are. You know, what is it you're going to do? And as much as you can, not changing the org charts and changing so everything is dramatically different when the disaster occurs. Um, you know, maintaining your normal way you do business, make that work for the disaster. And then just engaging in that discussion, having periodic, whatever works for you, exercises from just sitting around the table and talking about it to actually these full field things where you, you know, actually have the responders put on their gear and go play like they're footing out a fire. But one of the things, too, that is a key element of this that I identified and research identified a long time ago, most disaster problems are management problems, not skills problems. But most disaster training for years was skills. It was so frustrating for many of us in the urban rescue system that that was developing. We'd have these huge, very complex, very expensive drills to make sure these teams could operate. And when it was over, yes, we approved again. We knew how to break up concrete and package citizens and do first aid. The problems came up with interacting with the people where we were going to help, but we never did that. We never went in and had discussions on high risk areas on if an urban rescue team comes in, who are we going to talk to? How are we going to get the information to know where you want us to work and things like that? That's changed. But when it first came out, you know, and that that's what it was. We'd have these big drills that, you know, show people how knew to squirt how knew knew how to squirt a fire extinguisher. But look at the management issues you have to get your organization back going again. That's where the planning and training and discussion needs to go. And that's where we learn the hard way in local government and state government, even the national government, is your elected officials and the senior appointed people, the managers, the leaders, that's where it usually breaks down. They, not that they're bad people, but they don't know what that plan said. And they don't sit around and do nothing. They go out and start doing things. And it often doesn't resemble what the plan said. And that runs afoul of what people in the field who trained on the plan are trying to do. Take that I saw that in Mount St. Helens, and I saw that in Katrina, and you see that over and over and over again. So One of my things as a leader is recognizing that part of my job is to stay the heck out of the way of the experts. Like, let smart people do smart things in the field. I need to supply them with information and support, but my goodness, don't micromanage and, and don't overly mandate what they need to do. Well, because... Would you agree in, during crisis, yeah. you got to be flexible and you got to. Yeah. Uh, flex, flexibility is key, but also you need to kind of um, like we do in communities. What are your what are your objectives? You know, what are your priorities? And they're usually protection of life is usually the first one. Um, then protection of the property might be the second one. You know, protection of the environment might be third one. But you set your community priorities. So you're not trying to figure that out during the emergency. Um, most a lot of the management drills I used to do for um, cities and towns in Pierce County and the county elected officials and folks, you know, having a clear picture of what our priorities are in a disaster. And then that can guide decision making. And if somebody says you made the wrong decision, but our policy is we decided we were going to protect public property before we protect private property per se, you know, 
and I've had elected officials say, you know, doing that, that's going to give me cover when the citizens are mad that it didn't go their way. Our plan and policy, which is public record, the plan's been in the library, this, and, you know, it's outreach to, so everybody knows what that plan says. And we're getting better at that, but it's still um, a ways to go. And, I, and I'm, I'm glad you talked about objectives because, you know, one of the questions that typically comes up during a big incident is how do you get like 3,000 people all rowing in the same direction when, you know, they haven't done this before, let's say. And, and I can't overstate the objectives and doing that first and then working backwards from that and recognizing that you need to communicate those objectives to everybody as well. And that's a big part as well. So what are some challenges that you've seen in your experience with how do we communicate what we're trying to do? Because a lot of times we're dealing with the distributed workforce or distributed, you know, group. How do you, how do you manage that? Well, it's, you know, and there's no question about it. It is difficult, but it comes down to commitment. And I think, and you probably covered this on when uh, Tom Miner spoke, but one of the reasons that that was able to come together like it did. You had a lot of people that knew each other and could work together and had done it before and had been planning for something, not that particular event, but in our earthquake planning and in wilderness search and rescue, we had people who had worked together. So as much as you can in your organization, you know, just spend spend whatever time you can, you know, so people know what the plan says. And, you know, basic thing we always talked about of, um, or at least at a community level, straight from the research, it was educate your public, train your responders, have a plan, get acquainted. Those four mm-hmm. basic things in the public sector, I found very successful and they do work in my years of doing that. Um, I think that can relate to the private sector too. You know, train your people for what they need to do for what you can anticipate. And then if you've got a, um, whether it be clients, whether it be, uh, you know, your suppliers, whoever, um, you know, have that discussion with them and, you know, have a plan on how you intend to behave, what things you can anticipate might happen that will disrupt things and then do what you can to get acquainted. And it's been so successful. People had had some previous acquainting with people, even if they didn't like each other, always work better than just having that radio that I can talk to a stranger and get things done. You know, it's amazing how quickly that goes away in during crisis where how incredibly valuable it is to just go have a face to face, even if it's over video. But the the power of that, that we often forget because we would you agree that we tend to go inwards, right? We're like, you know what, I've got these problems I have to solve when really a lot of times go grab a coffee with somebody. and, And once you break down that personal barrier. We're all in this together, ultimately. And have you seen that time and time again, where it was this, this, and this, and then it was finally, hey, well, and I just talk about it. And in some of the larger events, like Oklahoma City, that I worked at, you know, there was friction, but people worked it out after a while. I mean, and it, um, uh, it's just impossible to stop everything we're doing and being prepared for everything. Um, but I think again, it'd be a policy decision on especially if you can look at all this research in public and private sector response and coordination and issues and everything from you know 9-11 and the Oklahoma City bombing to oil spills um, to major mass casualty accidents to airplane crashes and everything that all the bad things that have happened 
from what I, you know, again, as I used to say, I reserve the right to contradict myself, but with everything I've seen that where relationships and planning and just engaging in the discussion, how we intend to behave together when bad things happen, things, operations come together and get organized quicker, recovery moves quicker, you know, we're, we're planning as planning should be done, has been done, Instead of hiring a consultant to write your plan, it goes on the shelf and well, five years have gone by, you never used it. Well, let's get another one. You know, I think that um, every time I've seen that happen, it's there's potential trouble. And when I've seen communities, you know, responding, everybody's doing the best they can, but they're not following their plan that they wrote two years ago. Uh, that's right? it.